is Tap In Time, a Chapman Stick podcast. Whether you've played the instrument for years or are just curious, if it's stick talk you're looking for, this is the place. So come along and stay a while. out there and welcome once again to tap in time this is episode number 30 and i am victor i'm claire and i'm gene sometimes in life you get lucky you're just fortunate to be in the right place at the right time or with the right person at the right time and it just feels right is it luck or is it fate or maybe it was just meant to be like when Bill met Dale. We are quite fortunate this morning to have one of Edmonton's and Canada's finest musical coupling, Dale Latticer and Bill Hobson. The dynamic duo behind Crowtown Music are also players. Bill is a first call blues drummer in Edmonton, and Dale, as you may know, was an early adopter of the Chapman Stick in Canada and a musical powerhouse of writing, teaching, and activism. They run the gamut of styles in the music they compose and create, ranging from pop and rock and jazz to a fusion of ancient and traditional styles. We're quite fortunate to have them here with us this morning. Dale and Bill, welcome to Tap and Time. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here, you guys. Yeah, we're getting started kind of early. Early for us, anyway. <laughs> yeah, for Gene and I, I think uh, it's dark outside, but the sun will be up by the time we're done talking. <laughs> Half past dark. So where should we start? Well, I don't know much about Dale or Bill, and I would like to hear how, you know, how they got started in music. You know, the, you know, was it the early, you know, my grandma was a piano player, or is it something different, or is it, uh, you know, oh, in junior high, someone threw a violin at me and said, play this, you know, or whatever. Ow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so how did it start? How did it start in music? And and, and Dale, you know, we're going to have plenty to talk about, but maybe just this once, let's let Bill, let let me hear, Bill, how did you get started in music? Whose fault is this? Uh, well, I think it was probably the uh, the fault of the Beatles. Yeah, uh, yeah, that was probably the big thing yeah, that tr- triggered my desire to be a rock star. You know, I was about I don't know, maybe nine or ten, and uh, I saw I think it was Hard Day's Night. Uh, you know that, and along with some other pop culture things that were going on at the time, I just thought that's I, I have to be a, I have to be a musician. I, I don't know. At the time, I didn't know how to do that, but I chose to just be a drummer because that was the most available thing, I suppose, you know, hitting on pots and pans and pillows. <laughs> and so that's how it started for me, just goofing around with my friends. You know, I would get a couple of pieces of wood and bang on a, an old tub, you know, and they would <laughs> pretend to play a guitar. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> It kind of just grew from there. Uh, I got I got a drum kit when I was twelve. My parents uh, acquiesced to getting me <laughs> yielded. Yeah, and uh, I just started to play along with records, and uh, yeah, it just took it from there. I got my first pro gig, I suppose you'd call it, when I was about eighteen, uh, just in a local party band playing covers. It was kind of the beginning of the disco era. And uh, good times, though, right? I mean, 70s, right? Mm. Oh, yeah, there was, you know, <laughs> so much good music going on all through yeah. the 60s and 70s. You spent a lot of time in a funk band, too, right? 
Yeah, once I once I got going, I I moved to Vancouver and I joined a, a funk band. We called ourselves a funk band. Everybody else called it a disco band, <laughs> but we we thought it was funk. We called Gigs it funk, gig, right? <laughs> yeah, we toured around the Holiday Inn circuit, you know, playing playing the hits of the day. Really? Oh yeah, so yeah. There was a good you, circuit back then. I've got my own, and we can all kind of internalize this and then say it out loud. Like, think of your favorite Beatle. I, I think I know who your favorite Beatle was. <laughs> who, was your, who so and we'll we'll take a poll so everyone's kind of like I, I think I know who it is. So I think it was Ringo. Uh, well, I do have a lot of respect for Ringo. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, I I don't know if I, I can't. It's hard to think of a my favorite Beatle. I think it changes all the time. You know. Uh, I mean, okay. Right. I answer. love John. <laughs> Paul is fantastic. You know. Um, yeah. You know, I, I suppose George would be at the bottom of the list, but I, I don't, you know. Ah, uh, sorry. Kind of my favorite. <laughs> sorry, <wait>. George. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. he, he had his uh, moment. But yeah, I mean, you know, they're all fantastic in the chemistry, yeah. of course, you know. Sure. Yeah. Well, Talk hopefully about Paul it. doesn't hear this anytime real soon. Because when he hears <laughs> it, he's going to come after us. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what about recording out of curiosity? I mean, because we will talk a little bit about recording and, you know, we like to talk about recording the Chapman stick and things like that. But you're also doing a lot of work in production and engineering as well. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I was always fascinated by the studio atmosphere, you know, and as I started to work as a professional, I got more exposure to that world. And I always paid attention to, you know, what, what everybody was doing and, uh, the, you know, the technical aspects of it. And so, uh, yeah, it was something that I kind of leaned towards when I went to college. Uh, I, uh, switched my major to production, you know, when they, they, they were kind of just building a college at the time and they created a recording studio. So I was kind of in on the ground floor on that. Mm, that's great. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I learned a lot in college. And then, uh, uh, once that, you know, the ADAT revolution, if you want to call it, that came along and it became cheap to set up your own studio. Uh, that kind of, that's, that's when we started actually putting our studio together and, uh, well, we started out actually with a reel-to-reel, -reel, you know, a little Fostix reel-to-reel yeah. eight-track uh, recorder, and uh, I think quarter we, inch? quarter inch, yeah, yeah. And we, uh, we uh, the first, I think the first invoice and first time we billed anybody <laughs> to record them was we using that machine, wow. and uh, you know, a, a, an Alesis Quadroverb, and we had uh, <laughs> part my partner and I from our band, we had you know all of our. PA gear that we dragged around to gigs and stuff. So we had mics and stands and it was just, sure, it's a just the basic complement of stuff, you know. <laughs> it's a studio now. Yeah. All right. And yeah, we kind of started from there and then we, you know, found out more and more what we needed and we kept building it, you know. And uh, yeah, it's taken us to the point now where we have a very professionally equipped uh, studio of our own in our, at our home. Kind of specializing in analog. Yeah, really? well, we, okay. we managed to find a, uh, come across a, an analog uh, two-inch, uh, but not just any two-inch. It's a Studer, you know, a very professional mastering tape machine, and and uh, I think we got that around 1999. 
And that's kind of been the jewel in our crown for a long time. Yeah. Because wow. we love we love the analog sound, you know, and playing with analog tape. And mm-hmm. I don't know if it's a nostalgia. It's an extra or, effort, right? Like it, it appeals to a certain, um, not the word, it... it, it it shouldn't have to feel like it's like a boutique offering though. Although it like, you know, with analog, it's just, it's a little, it's a little, there's a more, there's more involvement and there's more like, and when you have that kind of history, the history that you do, it makes sense to, to work in that format because people are, you know, it, it's, I feel like it's just a more sincere approach to music as opposed to digitizing everything, speeding things up and slowing them down. So is there, yeah, a few years ago, I started hearing a phrase, um, lo-fi recording. Now, is that the same as an analog form or is lo-fi basically just great? I'm going to record this on my iPhone and it's going to sound great because it's, it's on got, a crappy it's microphone. Like, it's got like a little, like a turntable, kind of like a simulated kind of, <laughs> that's what I think of when I think of lo-fi, you know. Okay. Maybe I'll just edit that question out. Scratchy okay. AM. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Yeah. I, I, I would say the tape deck is pretty hi-fi. You know, it, it's it's the uh, the pinnacle of of what was what what they were able to do with analog. You know, when you get a tape deck of that quality, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and and maybe lo-fi is more when you kind of descend into using cassettes and uh, and things that are more <laughs> noise. You know, there's more noise involved and and sort of a lack of fidelity, uh, which has become kind of a popular thing. That's right. Yeah. I think that Tom Waits had a big, you know, kind of say in that with making everything kind of like scratchy and sounding like it was from the thirties and like in your grandma's attic, you know, like, yeah, (laughs) Yeah, think of lo-fi. He didn't call it lo-fi. It was just like, that's just how I feel and how I want to record my music. The thing too, with let's say professional analog tape is that it has an effect on the sound. It it saturates and compresses things a certain way, uh, non-linear way, I think is the official term. And it actually sounds really good on various things, especially drums. Yes, indeed, yeah. You'll notice, like, people using DAWs, they'll get, they'll get plugins that emulate tape, and there's a reason for that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so tape is really expensive, and that's part of why people don't use it. It's limited to 24 tracks, usually at the most, unless you're linking some. But, um, yeah, tape is definitely hi-fi. <laughs> Yeah, and if the track count is lower, like a 16 track uh, has better fidelity than a 24 track because there's more space of the tape being used. You know, you have two inches and, you know, the the amount of space used on a 16 track is comparable to what you would find on a quarter inch mastering tape, uh, like a two track that, that used, they used to master to in the old days. And it's the same resolution that you would get uh on that 16 track two inch so you know even a 16 track is even a step above a 24 track which is what we have the 16 track so (laughs) it's really quite remarkable that we have that thing you have a studer a80 16 track that's right yeah wow only seen the 24 tracks of those yeah the 16 track was kind of uh, you know, people back in the day were more interested in track count than than fidelity. They were, you know, they were willing to give up that fidelity in order to get the higher track count. Those fools. Those fools. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, yes. Little did they know. 
fidelity, well, I, and I, and I, you I imagine fools. now it's maybe less, but back then, like, most people had 24 tracks. So if you were going between studios, it might have been a little tough to... That's, yeah, that would be a factor, too, yeah. It must have been kind of crazy as things changed, you know, from 4 to 8 to 16 to 24, you know, and those those were not cheap machines, so... It would. It was probably not a lot of fun to have to upgrade mm-hmm. every few years or whatever. <laughs> yeah, pricey. Yeah. yeah, they eventually they stopped at twenty four, and then they started to synchronize decks together and things like that to get forty eight. So now, Dale, we've got Bill kind of spitballing about recording, and I do want to squeeze in a couple of questions for you as well. <laughs> I think that it is fascinating to hear recording spoken of in such detail whereas for me it's just like garage band you know like a really um, kind of a caveman like when it comes to these sorts of things and so i want to know dale yes gene when did music start when was it when were you like yes it's going to be music like well interestingly the chapman stick was the instrument that i learned how to become a musician on oh yeah. Maybe the Sweet. only person on this planet currently that can make that claim. <laughs> you came to bass after the Chapman stick, and I was like... After, yeah. Sure. And you were like, yeah, I play Fretless Bass. I was like, how about that? Well, I thought, you know, yeah, crazy, crazy really to pick up a Fretless Bass, but I thought, well, you know, if I went the full range of, of the bass world, you know, the stick can handle... This is my thinking at the time, is the stick could handle anything a bass could do. Um, you know, which isn't entirely true, but yeah. it's it's pretty it's it's pretty comprehensive. Uh, and so I thought, oh yeah, if I pick pick up a fretless, then then I'm you know I've got it covered. Uh, that was like six months after I picked the stick up. But I I originally really? started on guitar, uh, gotcha. hideous guitar, <laughs> playing you know Gordon Lightfoot tunes, truck driver chords to Gordon Lightfoot tunes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that oh, was I think it. that's beautiful. So, how old were you when you picked up a guitar? Sixteen. This hideous guitar, and whose hide- was it? Somebody else's hideous guitar? No, like- it was it was my hideous guitar. Um, <laughs> uh, I got it from from my dad. It was a Raven classical. <laughs> Only because I love Ravens, like our studio is called Crowtown, right? So, um, and that was because you know I I rescue uh, wild wild animals, and I primarily focus on corvids um so we had an injured crow at the time that we you know that bill was really putting this the 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 base of the uh studio together and wanting to incorporate it um so yeah just like crowtown is like motown but farther north that was our catchphrase that's good (laughs) i like that that's good yeah so you were 16 and, mm-hmm. you cha- and dad now was dad a musician or nope nope but he loved music and uh uh yeah and i loved gordon lightfoot um i i would dream of you know maybe you know going on canoe trips with gordon he was like he's mr <laughs> canada right and yeah. his his lyrics were just so remarkable to me i learned so much about the history of our country um through gordon lightfoot and so, yeah, and I got to meet him a number of times. He was, uh, he's just such a lovely and generous human being. But uh, he really carved out the initial um, uh, creative spark. Uh, but the, the actual switching over to the stick was when I really decided to go after music as a full-time profession. Wow. 
It's a bold move, right? I mean, it was it was like, where am I going to get strings for this? Oh, yeah. Like, how how all these things going to happen? Like, whatever. I you know, just start gigging, by writing writing songs, and and um, yeah. The uh, first number of months that I that I was looking for one, everybody would always direct me to the drum department. I had no idea. It was before you know everyone had mini computers funny. in their pockets. So, um, but I I actually the first stick that I ever laid hands-on was actually a dreadful copy that a guitar player made and uh, but I was so excited to you know I carried it home on the bus without a case and uh, yeah I was just wow. yeah yeah <laughs> get a strange looks there oh you have no idea <laughs> yeah yeah very frightened actually uh, people were very frightened of it but um, uh, then you know so it I was a knockoff it was a knockoff. It was a total knockoff. And it was just a dreadful thing. I had it for like eight months and then finally got a hold of a real stick. Um, yeah. and, it was like uh, a student model. It was like a student model Chapman stick. You know, it's like, oh, it's brutal. <laughs> if it's anything like my French horn, it didn't have that thumb valve and, you know, those other <laughs> things. So wait, 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 okay, let's let's back up for just a second. You went from, you know, a home-built knockoff to uh, to something that actually came out of Woodland Hills. Yes. What was the first impression when you tried the real thing? Oh, it was like learning how to drive a standard then switching to an automatic. It was uh it was really uh oh, it was a it was beautiful. And I I remember just staring at it in the case when I first opened it up for for a long time because of the 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 it was a Brazilian ironwood, 1771. It was so beautiful, and looking at uh, um, just the work, the craftsmanship that went in, it still had, you know, it was the early flat-top model with the guitar frets and stuff, but it was just so beautiful, and I knew nothing about it. I knew, you know, didn't know that the action should be a whole lot lower. So I, I really, it, 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 it was good exercise for my fingers until I got it set up properly, and um, uh, it was... It was just so lovely. It was just such a lovely, lovely experience um, having a relationship with uh, with an instrument like that that made you want to just do that for your life. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and, and and learning on learning on a good instrument. There's something to be said for learning on a on a good instrument. You just have more options, and there's. There's two sides to that argument, whether or not, you know, like if you learn on a really bad instrument, hey, you have to press a little harder, there's more effort, and it's kind of like, you know, baseball players when they've got that little donut on their on their bat, you know, and it makes it heavier. So like that's yeah. what I kind of equate to playing an instrument that's not quite as good. But then when you do get a really good one, and and I always feel that way when I when I pick up like a 12 string because I'm a 10 string player, I'm always like, wow, this is what the big kids play. <laughs> yeah. 12 string, it's so big. I'm gonna go back to my 10 string. Yeah, and this is like 1986, right? So, um, uh, I knew that that it would be really important for me to get some some actual tutelage from people that actually knew what they were doing. Uh, so I went to the National Guitar Summer Workshop in 1988 and met Frank Jolliffe, and um, I had never, we moved around a ton when, when I was little, I, I went to 18 different schools, you know, so I never really had, um, any kind of roots or camaraderie. Like I didn't have a lot of time to, um, build friendships or relationships with 
other kids, right? So the first time that I actually got to um, have that feeling of of brotherhood, if you want to say, um, is the uh, was that National Guitar Summer Workshop, and uh, that was a life changing experience. Now, was that up in Connecticut? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and Frank, uh, I, I I showed up like just before the end of the previous um, uh, stick session, uh, the week-long stick session, and uh, then got to hang with Frank. He was uh, he had to go drive to Maryland to uh, to give a lesson to another stick player, and uh, I remember you know driving with him and talking about James Joyce's Ulysses. Like you know, it was just it was just such an incredible incredible week. Yeah, life-changing for sure. Yeah, being in a room with someone or some people, depending on, uh, that know the instrument, especially when you're unfamiliar with it, is such a shot in the arm. Absolutely. I'm, I'm trying to find my, um, I, I have, so I bought a Chapman stick from a, a, a friend of mine who actually had his book with all his songs in it. And I was going to like... I have his book. Do you have it? Yeah, I have his, I have that. I, was like, I can't remember the name of it, but I've, I, I was trying to reach over and grab it because I went to the National Guitar Summer Workshop as well. And, um, you know, this has been the, the early 90s, like 1990. Um, Alfonso Johnson was there and Frank oh. Jolliffe was there. And it was like... Wow. So that was my introduction to the instrument. Um, and I had an instrument and, um, you know, the, the incline to, or the, had been signed at the time. And so we were getting ready to travel. And I remember like one of the last things I did was just go to this National Guitar Summer Workshop. And it was just the right place. It was the place to be as like, wow, this is it. And Frank was my real introduction into, this is how you lead a course as well. And so he was very kind of learned, you know, jazz guy, would walk the lines in the left hand and play the perfect melody in the right hand. And um, I've never seen a player like him. You know, oh. I've never seen a player like Frank Joliffe. I will never, he like, he was, he, they broke the mold, you know, because he was, he could play the straight ahead jazz. One of the only people I ever met to, to really separate both hands and really yeah. not like be hitting chords in the left hand, but just walking perfect bass lines. Yeah. And, um, you remember how he breathed? His his breath was his rhythm control. Right, right, exactly. It was like his percussion. <laughs> right, and like, I remember, yeah. Hmm. All right. Yeah, so Frank Joliffe, yeah. I mean, and, and actually when, when he passed, that was the impetus for me to start the Freehands Academy. So, Oh, how yeah. lovely. It's a true story. It's, I remember reading about it. He was 52. Wow. And, um, and he was a great player, and he did kind of move away from the Chapman stick towards the end of his career. Um, but... He, you know, never, uh, I think that his, his foundation was always, you know, in that kind of realm, but, uh, uh -huh. Uh -huh. yeah, I think he was a Juilliard uh, originally with guitar, right? Yeah. And they, he wanted to go to college and, you know, the, and study the Chapman stick. And they're like, no, you have to play guitar. Why don't you play piano? You'd be a great piano player. You could do all that stuff on a piano. He's like, I want to play the Chapman stick. And finally he found a school that would let him do it. Wow.
Bill and Dale, we've heard both of your sort of starting in music stories. How, where where does it blend together? Where did you guys meet? How did the studio come to be? Tell us a bit more. Uh, well, I was uh, I was working at a pub at the time, uh, booking live music and uh, taking care of the PA and whatnot, and uh, and so. Uh, it's kind of a funny story because there was a there was kind of a conflict over who was we, we just started booking a new uh, uh, night on Sundays and uh, the owner had gone out to a party the night before and and uh, connected with this guy who's a local agent he he hired him to book uh, acts for uh, for the Sunday night uh, that we were doing and didn't tell me about it. <laughs> and so I ended up booking somebody else for the Sunday night. Dale was a double booking, and I had to phone her up and tell her, "Oh, oh I'm sorry, but uh, we're, you're double booked, and we, uh, you know, we're going to have to reschedule or something like that." And uh, <clears throat> she said, "No, no, you can't do that. I, I put posters all around town, and I, I absolutely have to do this gig." <laughs> so <laughs> I my said, first "Okay, sorry, <laughs> okay. go Dale." Yeah. I'll I'll phone up the other guy, <laughs> Kevin Cook, uh, and uh, I phoned up Kevin and I said, uh, "Look, do you mind if we reschedule? We've got this uh, this Chapman stick player, and she uh, really wants to do the gig." And, <laughs> and he said, "Okay, yeah, no problem." And so uh, it's my first so club gig. Dale ended up getting the, the gig. Fight for it! Wow! Yeah. yeah. Oh, I was freezing, too. It was like a brutally cold day, and I'd postered and froze my fingers off, which I had mentioned to him when he was yeah, trying to reschedule. Yeah, part of the pitch, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure. yeah. I, I remember I, I knew about Dale. I'd heard of her because she'd just gotten some notoriety playing at the Edmonton Folk Festival. Uh, she was on the cover of the local magazine at the time, and so I think I was kind of more... I would preferred to have Dale. <laughs> Yeah, on the gig. Yeah, you know? yeah, so, yeah. I, I, think I was so. kind of pushing for that. Might have wanted her more than the other guy, also. So yeah, we met at the sound check, and uh, we didn't really, uh, you know, we were very professional, and you know, uh, the, the sparks were flying for me, of course. And I, but I wasn't sure. I didn't wasn't, wasn't picking up much from Dale until uh, the end of the gig, and. Uh, she, uh, you know, we kind of came together at the end of the gig and said, hey, that was fun, right on, you know, and uh, she's, <laughs> I was smoking at the time, and she said, uh, can I have a drag of your cigarette? <laughs> I just wanted to connect with him in some personal way. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's kind of strange. People don't usually ask for a drag of your cigarette, but I said, yeah, sure, and she took a drag. I said, are you trying to quit? And she said, nope. Because <laughs> I don't to start. smoke. Yeah, no. <laughs> coughing miserably. Right? Yeah. It's a pure, purely, purely just an intimate request. That was all it was. Yeah, uh, but that was my first club gig. Yeah, that was the first time that you actually played in, in a in a pub in that setting. It was one you had just. You were really new in your career. You had just started out. <laughs> oh, God, I barely had enough material for a night. And here's here's an indication of how um, delusional I was that I would fit into a club. The last song that we did, the last song we did was Kate Bush's Under the Ivy. Okay, wow. so, yeah. How did you get there? That's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, but it was, uh, it, was, uh, it was a lovely night. And uh, the crowd stayed, so, and there was no chicken wire, 
So that that was <laughs> what great. year was this? What year was this? Nineteen ninety one, November tenth. November okay. ninety one. Yeah, it yeah. was a long weekend of Remembrance Day. Mm. <laughs> it was Sunday night. It was pretty busy, being, you know, even for a Sunday night. <laughs> and, uh, funny thing about Dale, I remember after uh, uh, we started dating, and I came to see her at a gig, and it was just a, uh, it was this little. Uh, lounger it was a restaurant or something right and uh i came in and here's dale singing uh and playing her stick through a leslie speaker which she dragged she wheeled it from her home monstrous to this place. <laughs> it was on wheels i guess yeah yeah you know, somehow you got it into this restaurant this leslie and she was singing and Wait, playing like a leslie, through a leslie. Like, like a like a like a like a yes. five foot high massive. speaker with no, both it, the speakers. well it was a smaller yeah. one it was oh, like the, the okay yeah but still okay yeah it's okay, yeah. a smaller cabinet yeah 147 i had a really good dolly cabinet <laughs> <laughs> I know. You gotta right. You're, you're you're fearing that whole that Leslie trade. You know, there's you, you you gotta have a dolly. Yeah, singing and playing. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that is yeah. pretty cool. And so you were like, wow. You know, and were you kind of kind of critiquing the sound guy? You're like, thin on top. <laughs> well, I, you know? I just thought it was kind of. It had a kind of um, a charming naivete to it. Yes, know, that's right? exactly what it was. <laughs> so all she got is a Leslie speaker, and she got to get out there and you know. So, and so she's singing through it and playing through it and everything. Uh, you know, yeah. it sounded kind of like it was underwater. <laughs> Only when I had the speed up. If it was slow, it was actually a beautiful sounding speaker. Yeah. Oh, I stand sure. by yeah, my yeah, decision. We've, we've, so we're, used were you Leslie. singing and that my too? dolly. Yeah. Oh yeah. I I always. Uh, <laughs> I always sang and played. Wow. Yeah, yeah, the preamp pedal had two inputs, and you, I guess you got I wide in. Voice through it, yeah. Yeah, I oh, wide okay. into this. It was craziness, truly. That's so cool. Yeah. That's so cool. You it's rolled the Leslie in. And then like, <laughs> I'm sure Bill's like, God, a bit over the top, but yeah, I, I see it. I feel it. <laughs> <laughs> kind of yeah, eccentric. Was, and you, only, you lived like only about a block and a half from the... Yeah, I wielded gig, it so, down the street. So, yeah, you were roll, You were actually rolled it up the street to the, my little hippie gear. <laughs> Is there a picture? This gotta be a picture. I'm just like picturing Dale, just like with the dolly and like the Chapman stick on the back, you know, and like a couple cables and stuff. Like, <laughs> yeah, symbols between the knees. Yeah, <laughs> it's totally it. Well, when when I did, speaking of symbols between the knees, when I did the Tom Waits, William S. Burroughs, the Black Rider. Yeah. Um, part of the Devils for Betterman. Yeah, it, yeah, there there was like hi hat and stick going on at the same time. It was really fun. so you did actually do the the whole little one man band with the yep elbow snare drum. <laughs> oh, so this is where Bob Culbertson got all of his ideas. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's all from me. <laughs> God. Oh, yeah, that guy Bob owes me. Yeah. Bob. <laughs> yeah. So it was a good gig, and that was when you knew, Bill, oh. you were like, yeah, it's on. Yeah, I pursued well, him. Yeah, I, I, I think we, I can't remember exactly where, I know it was early on in our, in our dating uh, relationship, but, you know, we had kind of cemented things before that, I think. I think we were pretty comfortable by, at, by that time with each other. And so the studio was starting to come up right about that time. Yeah, Actually, it was like uh, it was it was more it was maybe a couple of years later. We were we were kind of messing around in the house. Uh, with yeah, the with time, the gear. The guitar player from uh, the band I was in, Takoy Ride, and I lived together in my house, and 
you know, we had uh, rehearsal space set up, but and he had a he he was the one who had the uh, Fostex Fostex yeah. uh, oh. eight track reel to reel. So, you know, we would maybe we were messing around doing demos and stuff like that. And I was playing with uh, sequencers at the time were kind of a thing. I remember, I remember I tried to create this thing for. Uh, this song for Dale with my little sequencers, and I, I tried to make this weird uh, Raven's Blood and Dale Dust. I remember that. Yeah, right. Yeah, but, I, I wrote a couple of these songs, and and, uh, and then we just started writing the uh, the first album, the Maven's album. That was between 1993 and 96 on Adats and Mackie, right? Yeah, well, I think it wasn't until about 95 that we actually got the got the recorders. But you were, yeah, right from the time I first, when I first met you, you had maybe one or two songs that you were, there were just sort of germs of the songs that you were starting to yeah. put together. Yeah, I just, I started to learn how to become a songwriter on the stick. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, one of your most popular songs, The Slip, it was was one of the first songs you ever wrote. That was one of those gifts where, um, like, I'm I'm sure you guys all do you know, composing, but it was one of those gifts where the lyrics, um, like at any time that I'd ever written anything before, it was always sounded contrived. But uh, it was one of those gifts where, through stream of consciousness, where the the the, the lyrics just came through mm-hmm. you and onto the pen and and out of the pen, and it was uh, yeah, it was a real gift, gift from the gods. Yeah, you have to seize that moment when it comes around. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about writing. So I know you've done, you know, you work in theater. So tell me about working in theater. As a Chapman stick player and a writer, uh, you know, you do some work with, um, in live theater. Yeah, and it's always a, it's always an incredible um, experience to do that because it's so collaborative visually as well as, as you know, uh, a sonor, sonorly. <laughs> I mean, I've done composing for stick, or, or pardon me, uh, doing soundscapes for you know theater companies. But we've actually done. Um, I wrote pieces for uh, this uh, thing, uh, Christina Rossetti's *The Goblin Market*, which turned into *Enchantment*, which actually um, had a live band performing, and it was stick, it was saxophone and flute, it was drums, percussion, mm. um, and. The, the one that was, I think, the most significant so far that, uh, in my life has been uh, The Black Rider. It uh, started out, this is the Tom Waits, William S. Burroughs piece, uh, where it was actually, it, it, it debuted in German. They had like Robert Wilson, who did like a, a million dollar budget for this, this show. And then November Theatre Company grabbed the rights, we got the rights, secured it, and did the English debut and toured it all around North America uh, for 10 years. And it started out as a seven-piece band and quickly whittled down to three. So there's piano, there was uh, horns and accordion, and then I was taking care of um, bass and Chapman stick and percussion, like I had a hi-hat. And uh, playing stick and hi-hat is... uh, Especially on the offbeats, it was <laughs> yeah. it was quite a it was quite exciting, but it was uh, some of the most beautiful music that uh, Tom has written. And he actually came to the New York show that we did, and 
he was so very I didn't get a chance to meet him but he he absolutely adored the uh, the production and we won some awards it was it was a really Beautiful. fulfilling kind of a thing yeah that is outstanding yeah I, remember, I think he had there was a quote from him that said that they they did so much more with so much less mm. yeah mm. wow that's a great compliment mm-hmm. yeah from yeah from Tom Waits mm-hmm Coming from a guy like riding around, like, you know, in like clothes that are 80 years old, like on a tricycle, right? Like, which I do an homage to in uh, the, in the Do You Think album, but I, I'm actually wearing a lobster, a lobster outfit. So, cause that was what was available. There's going to be a little about happening where Dale, like, I feel like we, we've had these conversations about Tom Waits and it feels like an inside joke. So, so if you don't know, that Tom Waits actual like image. There's this Im- funny image of him running around on a tricycle. I don't want to grow up. Exactly. I don't want to grow up. And so Dale, yeah, recreated that, but in a lobster outfit, right? Because, you know. Yeah. Because you gotta. <laughs> yeah. No, it hasn't been done before. I got to do it that way. Yeah. So tell me about, um, what about the ancient music quartet? The, the quartet or the, I think it was a quintet that you were in. Well, it was, uh, it's, uh, the first album is a four piece, um, and we're the ancient jammers. And, uh, yeah, there's, um, I think, uh, there's a song that, uh, we sent. It was, uh, I'd been playing this piece for years. It was one of the first pieces that I, that I ever learned. And it was cause I, um, briefly dated this guy that was taking an ancient history and music course. And he played me Finizzi Few. And which is from the 1300s. It's one of the earliest pieces. Well, it's like the the earliest piece of music um, written. Like written music. Yeah, written music. And um, and I, I just loved the idea of learning the oldest song on the newest <laughs> instrument. So none older, none more old. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And uh, it's uh, because it's just as two. Uh, I guess you'd call it. Forgive me. I'm not a, a schooled musician. Uh, it's is a counterpunnel. There, there's two two uh, lines moving at the same time, and it just seemed to lend itself so so easily, so beautifully to the stick. And uh, so, uh, but the the ancient jammers were like you know, um, there's a harpist, a Celtic harpist. Um, and um, um, a keyed fiddle, or what is called a nickel harpa, and uh, a hummelchen, which is a less obnoxious bagpipe, and uh, <laughs> and we just uh, created a uh, uh, we we did a lot of classics like uh, Sally Garden, uh, Turion, uh, things like that. But we also wrote. Um, pieces in the ancient medieval ilk. That's so cool. And the Chapman stick is like sitting snugly. So now were there feelings like, that's not an actual ancient instrument? Well, you know, I haven't had anyone talk to me like that, which is great because (laughs) I was so ready. Um, But it it sounds so beautiful with the harp. Our second album um, is just the harpist and I, because the the two, uh, the nickel harpa and Hamilton player are, were doctors and they went back to Sweden. They actually had the, uh, uh, it was, we were lucky enough to, to uh, have been invited to uh, the largest medieval festival in Europe, uh, which is in Visby, you know, uh, performing the ancient jammers music to 8,000 half naked Swedes. <laughs> it was just absolutely adorable. And, uh, you know, on the, Top uh, that. <laughs> on the, <laughs> the, the coast of the Baltic sea and, oh my gosh, it was so lovely. 
Yeah. Playing in a Which, 12th century church. Album? Or when, when was that show? Um, it was sort of 20... 2016. I'm yeah, 2016. And what was the reaction to the Chapman stuff? They were quite, uh, it was a, it was staggering. It was staggering. Mm. I, uh, in between shows, I took my little battery powered amp and did some busking just with the stick. And I made more money <laughs> busking in Sweden than I have ever made anywhere, which is, Sweet, it was so uh, lovely. The Swedish appreciate live music. Mm-hmm. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So that was 2016. Mm-hmm. And the, so what was the, I'm trying to think of the, what you had done with the broken band. And I, I know that the, the CD, you had handed me a CD, I think in 2014. Yeah, there's, um, there's three, actually the first album that we did was the Mavens and then the Mavens mm-hmm. added a sax player and became the broke ensemble. Gotcha. And, um, the, the album that came out in, uh, I'm not a very prolific songwriter, but we pack a lot into <laughs> into our recordings. Um, the uh, album, the first album for the Broke Ensemble, came out in 2003, and it's called Brimstone and Clover, and that was uh, that was quite a. I felt a lot easier in my heart about recording on stick. The first album, the mm. Mavens album, was like I was learning. I was still learning how to play. And I was learning how to write. It was a very, it was a quite a quite a blossoming of sorts, you know. Sure. In, uh, but yeah, that was uh, the first one is on ADATS. Did we have the Studer by twenty by the second album? Yeah, yeah. The first album was all done on ADATS, and then the second one we had the tape deck, and we were using it extensively. Could you expo- explain what DAW is? That's the digital audio workstation, like Pro Tools. Is a okay. DAW. Yeah, you, you, you analog folks, you wouldn't like, yeah. <laughs> I'm just teasing, take that out. That's a terrible thing to say. <laughs> well, we, we actually do you have like Pro Tools and stuff. I know. That's why I'm like, I'm like, maybe it was like the, they, they say it differently in Canada, you know. Leading off on your comment of like Pro Tools versus tape, I'm curious, you know, part, part of what we wanted to chat with you both about was recording for sticks specifically. And maybe that's a good place to start on how how are you like leveraging tape versus the editing ease of a DAW or something like that? Well, we we actually have this uh, technology that uh, we purchased maybe back in 2018 called the CLASP, which stands for Closed Loop Analog Signal Processor. And what it does basically is uh, it synchronizes your DAW with a tape deck uh, without using any SMPTE or anything like that. So it actually you're you're actually recording uh, your your signal through a tape deck. Uh, it records onto the tape and then immediately plays off of the repro head into the DAW. And so you're recording digitally, but you're doing it via the tape deck. So you're hitting the tape and then it's playing off of the tape deck and onto the DAW. And then what it does is because, you know, the, obviously the repro head is later than the record head in time. Uh, when you stop recording, it automatically makes that adjustment. It shifts the, uh, the file that you recorded into the proper time. And so basically you're, you're using the tape deck now as more like a signal processor. 
Okay. And so that system accounts for like, so, so you can do, wow. So you can do tracking or overdubs and it's the same thing. Are you, yeah. do you generally keep like the tape bit or are you generally reusing it? What sort of instruments are you going through tape on or is it, are you doing everything that way? Yeah, well, we have everything that we do now is done that way, and it basically, yeah, it uh, you reuse the tape. Yeah. To so, yeah. Yeah, you don't you don't have to buy a new reel of tape when you uh, have you know done four or five songs, and you know you don't have to keep everything on the tape when you use this system. We have a lot of prejudice to how things sound when they're going on to tape. I mean, it's just, I mean, if you, you just take a layman and, and say, which one sounds better? They're, they always pick stuff that's on uh, actual tape. It's just warm and natural. And it's just beautiful for, you know, bass type instruments and, and drums. Yeah, and it's particularly, yeah, I find it definitely enhances the bass. And uh, like, like you were saying, it, it, it uh, compresses the highs too, so they're not quite, quite as harsh. Mm-hmm. When you record the Chapman stick, do you have a like a go-to configuration or setup that you do? Do you want to talk about through a blue painting? Uh, well, through a blue painting, I think it was it was very early in our uh, uh, just after we got the tape deck, and that one was not recorded with that clasp technology. It was done uh, just directly. We just recorded the stick directly onto tape and mixed it off of the tape deck too, kind of the old-fashioned way. Uh, and, ah, nice. Uh, and that one, that stick was, uh, or that. The part was all uh, performed on the bass side of the stick. Yeah, two hands on bass. But uh, it was used the upper range of the lower half. Right, right. So uh, yeah, I, I really love that that range of the stick. Is really sounds so rich to me, you know. And it's the got harmonic those overtones. Upper harmonics, uh, you know, that ring through. It's uh, that's a really beautiful example of uh, that range of the stick. I think, and uh, it's, a, it's a different fundamental. Yeah. Just everything about that section of the instrument, you've got almost like equal sides of string length on either side, mm-hmm. and it just feels right in the, the middle section with two hands on the bass there. Yeah, and it's got such a such a rich, beautiful sound, you know. It's a, and you just used a bit of verb on it and compression, and oh, did yeah. we have the crane song by then? <clears throat> I think we did have. Uh, yeah, we we were starting to pick up some very nice uh, high-end analog gear, so we were using, uh, you know, pretty nice preamps. We kind of gone beyond just the Mackie ADAT combination. You know, we were using API preamps, I think, 
and maybe and possibly the, we had a, also some stuff from Crane Song, which is really a high-end uh, analog uh, mm-hmm. preamp mixer combination. That's, and that song came out quite uh, quite naturally, just out of shapes. I often uh, will just throw my hands on the on the instrument, uh, just shapes-wise. And uh, and Gene, you're exactly right. It was one of the most comfortable pieces to come together. It uh, and it's. It's somewhat roboto, um, just throwing, inserting a musical terminology anywhere that I can actually do that. Um, it's, uh, but, it, but it's, uh, it's. I thought Mr. Roboto. I thought we're talking about sticks now. So yeah, Domo ought got right over the head. Oh, I was working in a record store when that came out, and that was, uh, yeah, yes, a lot of our play copies went missing because it was just so <laughs> overplayed. Sticks never did have a stick in the band. That's right. How oh, wrong. boy, missed oh, opportunity oh, yeah. big time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, uh, and um, that was, uh, that album, that whole album was really, uh, things started to really gel for us. Uh, Barry on guitar, you on, on drums, me on stick. Um, part of, uh, oh, actually one of the songs that, that came from some of the live theater that, that I did was a, a tune called At Home. And... Uh, that is probably the most pop tune that uh, that we have. It's got, I think, the strongest hook because a lot of my stuff is just really strange, you know, <laughs> strange time signatures and. So one tomorrow shall be like today, but much more sweet. But I, no, this is when we started fooling around with, uh, was it re-amping? I, I know, I think I played the melody side through a Mesa Boogie. Yeah, you know, I'm, my memory is a little foggy about this, but I know that we have used uh, amplifiers, you know, uh, uh, for the top end and the bottom end of the stick, but uh, not necessarily recorded them through the amplifier, but re-amped them later, you know, we record it direct and then... <clears throat> run that line through an amp and mic the amp and blend those two together. We yeah. Definitely. Uh, okay, so you're blending them together, so you're kind of like having, it's not quite the same, but kind of like having a wet and a dry signal at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, so you could, I suppose you could consider running the signal through the amp as the affected mm-hmm. process signal, you know, and we're kind of blending those two together to kind of fill out more uh, harmonic. Um, Saturation? Full, fullness, you know. Yeah, yeah. Is there a guitar on Is that all stick or is there a guitar on that? There uh, is a guitar on Bloop, okay. where which, uh, well, uh, actually both. At home, I think we're talking about? That's yeah, right. at home. Yeah, there's guitar on that, too. Oh. Yeah, quite a sonorous, uh, sorry, that, I'm not going to use that word again. 
Um, quite a quite a beautiful um, uh, solo uh, from our wonderful guitar player who's been playing his instrument longer than I've been alive. So is there uh, is there any melody stick? Oh yeah. In this? Yeah. Okay. In, in in at home. In at home, yes. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that's. I think we ran that through the Mesa Boogie amp too. You know, but it's a uh, uh, the the rhythm part is played on the top end of the stick. Right. Oh, okay. What were some okay. of the challenges you ran into when you were recording the Chapman stick? Where you're like, <laughs> like would, would be like, it's like, it's like, do you get like fret noise or there's like the belt on the belt hook? You can hear like the squeaking. Were there any like, like were there any challenges that you came up against while you were recording? I mean, aside from operator error. <laughs> <laughs> uh. That's like my MO. That's like not a... unique to stick, though. <laughs> That's right, Claire. That's right. right. Yeah, no, I don't really recall a lot of problems with noise, <clears throat> other than maybe, you know, sometimes there may have been like a, a, a bad cable or something like that. But, uh, or, so how about uh, the attack? Um, the, I mean, the stick has a very sharp attack. Yeah, that's true. Um, uh, do you just, I mean, is, is it something you ever feel the, the desire to try and tamp down with some compression or, or some, something else? Or? Uh, not really, you know, because when we use the compression, I, I tend to use a pretty slow attack. And, uh, and that's, uh, uh, you know, the, the attack of the stick is uh, pretty fast. Unforgiving so is the word I like much, to use. Yeah. <laughs> It all comes through, I think, but I don't find it obnoxious. Oh, that's good. You know, I don't think, I've never <laughs> thought of it as a problem. And it might be partly because, you know, we're hitting uh, tape with it too. And so it kind of, it absorbs uh, right. some of that uh, immediate harshness. I suppose it is getting a softening compression right off the top. Or, you know, well, like uh, the signal chain is like through... Uh, usually I use the, the API preamp and then run it through, uh, uh, it's an M77 made by Purple Audio, which is a copy of an 1176. Which just, is just a wonderful analog uh, mm -hmm. compressor limiter. And Bill, uh, an 1176, so like what, if you don't mind me asking, what is an 1176? <laughs> That's... Uh, <laughs> And that's a classic uh, compressor that's uh, really uh, famous for, uh, you know, it's a very well-used compressor that's made by, originally I think it was made, designed by um, Universal Audio. Gotcha. And uh, yeah, there's uh, since have been copies that have come out to, that uh, emulate that, uh, the electronics. and So... Compression is a pretty common topic in the stick world. So someone like me, if I was if I was trying to emulate your effort, but obviously I don't have the analog equipment, I'm using something digital, uh, you know, what is what is slow? And then what, you know, what sort of uh, ratios are you using and, and, and such? Um, the ratio was usually either four to one or eight to one. So kind of we tend to sort of use that range and uh, as far as the attack yeah like a, a slow attack just allows it, it doesn't react to the sound as quickly so it doesn't snap off that so uh, what sort initial. of setting would you be using to get that i mean if i if memory serves the uh you're dealing in milliseconds of some sort is that right 
Yeah. Yeah. Although it's kind of vague on, you know, when you look on the 1176, it just has these numbers that I've never really thought related to anything like milliseconds. So it's <laughs> okay. more of a thing where you just kind of turn the dial until you hear it. That's the and I, can, I can't really that. say, you know, hit yeah, the, these go to 11. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's just the, the idea really is to just let, let that attack come through and it, it tends to clamp more on the, uh, there's kind of an ass swell afterwards that happens, sometimes more profoundly than others. So mm -hmm. it sort of helps to even that out. Did we experiment with uh, recording or setting up a mic to get the tapping finger sounds on Kitschy Jelly? Uh, yeah, you know, I can't remember what specific song we did with that, but we did mess around with putting a condenser mic right on the strings to pick up that string sound, you know. And uh, and I remember I've, I've experimented with with guitars doing that too, and you know, nece haven't necessarily found it to be all that. I think we rewarding, did rewarding. You know? I think we did a blend. It was either on well, through a blue painting have. or Kitschy Jelly. We did the beds live, right? And yeah. Just, it was just you and I. It was doing stick and drums. We brought in like a guitarist uh, after the fact, but uh, you mean that was with, on Kitschy Jelly? Yeah, that yeah. was on the Studer. Yeah. From here on in, we were doing Studer only, I think, right? Yeah, at that point, yeah, the second album, it was all done with the tape, and yeah, we when we record the beds, we would uh, do them live. You mm -hmm. and I, uh, either Dale and I or Dale and I and Barry would do the beds live, and then we would, you know. Uh, Repair mistakes and then overdub parts onto that. Yeah, do a guide vocal and then we. Pr I think we did all the vocals digitally because I like to mess around. Yeah, we uh, at the time we didn't have the clasp, so we were we chose to do the vocals uh, on the on the doll, uh, so we had the editing power. Mm -hmm. So what about um, what about? Or actually, Dale, so I wanted to ask you: When you're recording, do you? Do you give yourself, there are some players, I mean, like Bob, who just, it's like one take, right? Just like, hey, here I go, you know, I'm going to do my thing. And then there's other players where, like, you've got the Don Schiff kind of school where it's like, I'm going to get this bass sound. Like, I'm going to nail this bass sound. And then we'll do maybe an overdub on the melody side, or maybe he does some stuff together. Did you have a preference about doing it all at once, or were things recorded separately, or... There was, uh, uh, because I, I, my approach is more like a, it's a song, I can't play one side without the other most, most of the time. There is a couple of tunes that we just recorded uh, uh, the bass line and then the melody line, but largely, especially like for these uh, three albums, uh, it, it was done as 
at the same time. So, you know, I, my preference is recording live because that's where you find the excitement, the energy, the passion comes through. Um, I notice, yeah. and you know, what the more you do this, the better, the better you get. But the, but the more you do this, you can tell if you are too uptight. That absolutely comes through in your playing. You have to, you have to just be. Um, our, our saxophone player, who actually just passed recently, Brett Miles, who uh, is all over our, our Do You Think album, um, he said something invaluable to me when we were playing live once. And he said, uh, I, I turned to him and I said, I don't know whether I want to do this next tune because uh, it was very challenging, right, physically, and I'm really struggling. He goes, Oh, you can't get off your island. <laughs> and uh, and that's really what it is, right? You're thinking it's a, it's an ego thing. You, like you, know, you have to just not like you remove yourself and your ego from the equation, and recording and performing just wow makes it happen. You're a conduit. You're just like like yeah. Let the music through. Yeah, exactly. A vehicle. Yeah. And don't get stranded wow, on the sound. Yeah, he was great. Yeah, I think that's always been our aesthetic is to <clears throat> get it as live as possible. Mm -hmm. Well, and we got this great room that's got 10-foot ceilings and, you know, like, so why not use it? It's been treated uh, acoustically. And and so, you know, we, we designed it to record live, like a, a poor man's version of real world studios, right? If it works, though, right? I mean, if it if it works, if it if it you know if it releases you from the island, right? Yeah. As long as you're not getting kicked off the island. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, what about preamps? So, talk to us about preamps because we like we love compression and EQ and preamps. Are like the first, like the like the that's the foundation, right? And then all kind of space out and start talking about reverbs and delays. But the essentials, right? It's good compression understanding how to EQ it and preamps. Yeah, well, we were fortunate enough to have some very nice high-end preamps. Uh, you know, after we had been in business for a while, uh, we invested in uh, some of the API uh, preamps, uh, and uh, we, got a, we got an API lunchbox, which had a pair of uh, 512C, which is the famous API preamp. And uh, I love how every time you mention gear, Claire's nodding. Like she knows like, this stuff. Yeah, you know, this is what big kids talk about. Yeah, oh, yeah. No. Claire is, mm. yeah, that's, uh, yeah, this is what you get for going to NAM every single year. And <laughs> or being a director at like a music school like Berkeley. Yeah, right? for being a senior director. <laughs> you guys just get me every time with that one. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I'm, I'm actually scrolling through the equipment list of your studio right now. So. Nice. Oh, yeah, there you go. Yeah, we also got some of that um, Crane Song stuff, which is uh, designed by uh, a genius in, I think it's Wisconsin or something like that. Now, that, that is one that Nam is wonderful for. If you ever go to Nam, go talk to the Crane Song guy. I, I can't think of his name right now, but wow, I've had some interesting conversations with that gentleman. Yeah, I get the impression he's a fascinating guy. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, they, they deal with analog emulation, too. Yeah, they do, uh, and that's part of the one of the features of this Crane Song Spider we have is uh, it has uh, it emulates analog and probably they're probably the best at it of anyone. Is it, um, is this would this be a good time to to insert uh, your conversation with Bob Katz? You had uh, 
But do you guys know who Bob Katz is? He wrote the Bible for uh, mastering. Wasn't he? Oh, I'm thinking of Gary Katz. I'm thinking of uh, Steely Dan. I, I don't. I know of the name. Yeah. Yeah, he has a website, uh, and uh, well, he's got a mastering studio, and he has a website that's got a lot of really great educational stuff in it. He was part of the one of the th people that inspired me just to. Uh, get into using the analog tape deck you know he, we used to or on his website probably still has articles about where he waxes on about the beauties of of uh, analog tape recording yeah he wrote but he's also yeah he wrote he wrote a book on mastering and he mastered our last album and uh, the iTunes, he's, he's written a, his latest book is mastering for iTunes which is a whole right. different animal right yeah oh wow yeah, it was very Sounds interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. So, like, it's almost like mastering for that digital format. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for <clears throat> specifically for delivery on on iTunes, which is now Apple Music. Uh, yeah, he he gets right inside the technical aspects of it, and he talks about you know uh, the program, the mastered for iTunes program. Which is, you know, like a lot of, in the early days when they were compressing audio down to M4A, there was a lot of uh, uh, issues with uh, peaks and, uh, you know, uh, causing the, uh, the codecs to, to go bad and, and making, you know, just bad files from, from uh, audio that wasn't mastered quite correctly. It had like intersample peaks and things like that. He pointed out that you would, you know, take your CD and rip it into iTunes and then turn it into an M4A. And if you checked with it, they have a, a piece of software that you can use called AFClip, uh, where you can check to see if there's any clipping. And uh, after, you, after the conversion, the conversion process actually creates situations that, that cause clipping. And so it has to be mastered with that in mind. And, you know, sometimes you have to actually take the, the volume of your master down or re reduce the peaks in order to get it to fit in that format, you know, to survive the conversion to, you know, M4A, which is what their <laughs> Apple so format when you is. First, you know, when you first brought up, you know, mastering for iTunes, my first thought was that it was about that, you know, for years, I guess mastering was intended for uh, for regular speakers and filling a room uh, and back in the days when headphones were almost always cans you know <laughs> whereas nowadays you know it's all earbuds and I'm, I was my first impression was well this is you know mastering for your know, earbuds that are going to be in someone's ears instead of something that's going to fill a room uh, uh, how off track was I on that that's something that that's definitely a consideration um you know, when you're mastering for that format, you know, in terms of how much do you compress, you know, how much compression limiting do you use so that, you know, uh, somebody who's listening on earphones uh, or earbuds uh, the and, you know, the, the ambient noise in the room, uh, you know, is, is kind of impinging on the sound. And, you know, so how, how loud do you make it before you destroy the sound? Uh, mm. You know, it's, that's kind of a constant battle, I suppose, for, for all, all mastering. But now with digital yeah. mastering, you can, you can pin something right up to the very top, you know. Mm -hmm. It's just absolutely 
constantly in your face. Uh, but it's a balancing act because the closer you get to that, the more you kind of are wrecking the audio. Right. So you want to, you know, you want it to still be open, but you want it to to uh, to be heard. You know, when you're on like a, you know, when you're running on a treadmill and you got your ear earbuds in, you need to have it, you know, loud <laughs> enough to hear it. I'm what? never on an e <laughs> treadmill. <laughs> <laughs> Is there another analogy we can use? Yeah, what? Uh, <laughs> sitting in front of a laptop, maybe. Sure, yeah. about Bobcats. Tell me if you had a conversation with Bobcats about recording the Chapman stick and this to me sounded like solid gold. Yeah, he uh, he got the tracks and he listened to them and one of the things that occurred to him when he was listening was they uh, should have uh, you know, maybe they should have run the uh, bass side of the Chapman stick through a, an amp and uh, then and he thought about it and he thought well but then again if you run the if you run that through an amp then it's more like a bass guitar and it sort of takes away from it being a pure stick so you know when you just use the direct sound it's definitely you know all stick and it's not like you're trying to turn the stick into a bass guitar yeah, philosophically. Yeah. And Joe, so yeah, the, his philosophy was, you know, maybe it's a good idea to not amp it, you know, unless you're going for a particular effect or something. And if another you want thing, to sound he, like a bass, get a bloody bass. Right? Exactly. <laughs> you know, th this is a Chapman stick, so he kind of liked the idea that it was direct. You know, after thinking about it. Gotcha. He also has like three Grammys for recording, right? So I mean, like, yeah, who's going to argue with him? <laughs> yeah, he's the Golden Ears guy, right? And another thing he said is interesting. I thought about the stick was that the bottom end of the stick goes right to the center of the earth. It was that was his words? <laughs> oh. That was a beautiful description of of the the wow. low power that the stick has. You know? Yeah, right yeah. To the center of the earth. Now was that with a was that with with a stick up that he was listening to or was that the the pass of four? Um, I think uh, it, yeah, it had to be the pass yeah, four. Yeah, it was the pass of four. Because um, that's uh, that was all done on my uh, latest, my newest uh, stick. My old one, I I recorded the first album, the Mavens album with the uh, with my first stick, 1771. That's where you get you know false start, um, which uh, the the there was a lot of heavy processing in some of of that. I know the vocals were super processed. It was a kind of a avant-garde kind of a, an approach. I had this strange African kind of melody on the right-hand side. Um, that that song actually came out of, uh, believe it or not, it was inspired by a box of Kraft dinner. 
where there was in the middle of the two. I was going to say, maybe it's, you know, <laughs> Maybe the, uh, well, the, the, the box had collect and trade up to 52 different endangered wildlife cards available while quantities last on specially marked boxes of craft dinner, craft spirals, or noodles. I, I, fa- I was so horrified and disgusted with the it, how, how in bad taste yeah. this whole thing was. It's, it's not a greatest hits. This is not something we're proud of, right? Like, yeah. Which I actually got my friend who has a really great radio voice to, to read off of the box in the middle of the tune. Oh. And, uh, but yeah, kind of performance art, but... Um, it's still brilliant though. I mean, yeah, so... So that brings us to a, a kind of a cool juncture here, and we're covering a lot in a very short amount of time. So, um, Dale, your voice in the in our world, you know, it counts for something, and, and you take um, you take these matters of of both local. Uh, we don't have to get into details, but like, why is how does activism elevate your music, and vice versa? Well, usually um, subconsciously. I mean, you know, we we care about the natural world. And, uh, you know, especially having uh, moved around so much as a kid, I, I got to see, uh, I have a real good sense of of the whole country. Because, I mean, Canada's huge. You know, if it was Europe, there would be like 40 different countries in Canada. Um, but uh, I always, I grew up just loving, you know, kayaking and and canoeing and and camping and um uh, have a lot of really close wildlife encounters that'll be for another show perhaps but um <laughs> it it just comes through the pores right i've always written tunes um just uh um uh, just you know like a i usually do use a stream of consciousness kind of a thing in in music i i try and base it off of uh, percussion or some kind of rhythm you know, like the Peter Gabriel School of Songwriting, you know, you build songs on rhythm. Um, but, uh, you know, m- things that you care about just come through. So it's never a conscious kind of a, an approach. Things that you care about. That's kind of what I heard is that is, 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 is as I see that and in, in your kind of your presence online. And that's something that's near and dear to you. Yeah. Um, the last uh, album we did, uh, the Do You Think album has a pharmaceutical cantata on it <laughs> and, um, because you know there was uh, there was I I, I had uh, written a lot, some articles on uh, on uh, marketing and uh, you know pharmaceutical companies having uh, like they had marketed things like for I, I think it was Pfizer who has was working on a uh, um, a, a, a drug for shopaholicism, uh, where these things could be addressed with a lifestyle change, and uh, and they were just you know they're they're they got me thinking about how they're Oof. pushers, and yeah. so that's how the pharmaceutical cantata came up, and that was a uh, based on uh, ice warming glad, and uh, dose the low blows and uh, shy boy blues, but uh, ice warming glad is uh, is one that. Uh, we wrote. It was the first time that I really got to get into writing rap. Um, I've, I, I actually adore rap now. I mean, like I, I, I listen to it more than I listen to 
standard music. I love Aesop Rock and Kendrick Lamar. And, oh, you've uh, turned to the dark side. <laughs> 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 well, Cult of Vision is, is uh, the tune that, uh, our latest tune, and it has like the last half of the tune. It's epic. I don't know how long it is. It's like six minutes long, but it's like the last half of the tune is all rap. Oh, it's only five? Yeah. Oh, seems like six. <laughs> around on bloody knee earning gasping broken wheeze and dying of stupidity condemning all humanity and all we held in custody hidden behind ones and zeros convincing dullards are heroes wrapped in hats and flags and pride feeding all the rage inside red and white and black and blue don't know what you have put them through while every plant and every tree and all the natural beauty so actually, we're, we're, we're coming up on time, and, and there were a couple things that we did want to cover, and we did want to cover recording, we wanted to cover preamps and a little bit of EQ, we wanted to talk about, we did cover uh, reamping things, some techniques you can use with compressors, um, as well as, you know, it's, it, the, it, it, is, it is reassuring to hear that when you record the Chapman stick, you record it all at once, because that's the way the song was written. And so you have different camps in the Chapman Stick world. Guys like me, you know, I'll read off a little Bach, you know, something I print off the internet, and it's just very kind of simple, and I didn't write it, but I will practice hands separately. So how does singing come into all of this? I mean, like, when you are singing and playing, it, does it feel like you're like juggling while you're on fire, like on a unicycle? I mean, it, it just feels like <laughs> when you're singing and playing a Chapman stick, it just feels like, like you can't be distracted. It's like, but, but maybe, maybe that comes natural after a time. I, it really does. I mean, it's uh, because the, the song evolved that way. One, as a matter of fact, if I didn't sing a part, it would throw me or it could throw me. Um, it's like taking one hand away in the middle of the piece. Uh, it's, and also, you know, it helps me keep time. You know, you spoke about Frank Jolliffe uh, using his breathing as a, as a timekeeper. Singing is definitely uh, um, something that helps me with my meter. I, I got an opportunity to the last the last day job I had was running a printing press, and <laughs> I brought my metronome to work because it had like you walk from one end of the press to the other, and it uh, it had like four or five different rhythms and polyrhythms going on at the same time, and I listened to that eight hours a day for five years, right? So. Um, so I had a metronome setting, so like the speed of the press would be at three, it would be Andante, and you know, like different. It was, <laughs> wow. it really ingrained good meter, so that um, if you if you look That's at this cool. the slip uh, video of uh, at the Windspear, um, that there's uh, actually a portion of that tune just because there was something I think that happened to audio wise that is taken from two different performances. And it managed to be the same meter, um, which was which was kind of fun. Oh wow, that's impressive! Yeah, it worked out nice. Very huh? impressive. Wow. So I suppose one of the one of the, and we'll get to the closing here at some point. But I did also want to talk about um, your work in professional instruction because I know that um, we, I, you know, the the twenty fourteen event. Um, was so fantastic. And it was this, you know, I know Claire, you were there and, and we had a, an event at the Freehands Academy 2014 
And we had Tony Levin there and Emmett was there as well as Bob and Steve and Greg and Kevin and, and Don. Don and Larry. Wow. Right? And, and then you and you know, me and, um, but also like Dan Chapman and Diana Chapman as well. She did, you know, like she was the doing yoga. yoga and it was, a, it was an amazing experience. And so maybe tell me from your perspective, what, what, what that was like that event. It is still an event that I look back on, and it keeps it keeps me going. It's uh, invigorating. I mean, we had COVID for the last few years, so there wasn't really any events. Uh, I know uh, Jim Riley's going to have a stick night in November in Calgary that he invited me to. So I'm. It's going to be the first time that I that I'm going to be hanging with stick players for for some time. Um, but uh, I I made a promise that I would definitely go to. Um, stick conferences next year, um, uh, and I actually so you were out at the Vancouver one, right? You or the the um, the one the one with uh, Jim Meyer. Like you, you've you've done an event yeah. up there, at least yeah. like a few, yeah, yeah. It's uh, yeah, it was lovely. As a matter of fact, the very uh, aside from the National Guitar Summer Workshop, the next stick conference that I went to was Jim Meyer's uh, in like early, I think there's this, uh, this one photo I posted, I'll have to repost it, but Greg Howard was there and Teed Rockwell. And, um, and we, the three of us ended up doing uh, the concert at the end of the, uh, of the, of the, of the weekend. But those kinds of experiences, especially the 2014 one. I remember I'd come up in April and did a, a show with you and Ke- yeah. Kevin, Keith, and uh, um, and Emmett. Uh, man, that was just so so joyous. There was so much yeah. joy, and uh, and then come, being able to come back in the same year and do the the Free Hands Academy was just magical. There were so many special moments. Yeah. Um, Thumb wrestling. I re- I'm amazed at how good a thumb wrestler Greg <laughs> Howard is. <laughs> yeah, he takes it pretty seriously. I expect it to be like, you know, not challenged. Because <laughs> right, right. I'm Olympic material. A, you didn't have me down. I wasn't down. I wasn't even down. I was like, <laughs> doesn't count. Doesn't count. I was like a line judge. He's like McEnroe. He's like the McEnroe of thumb wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it's funny looking back on that event and how much of what we remember has nothing to do with the stick. <laughs> yeah. yeah the the piano man the singing i would be remiss in... yeah if we didn't talk about <sighs> billy joel night so there was a night and, and i mean it was tim longfellow and dale were at the piano and i think it started with zappa and then it cascaded into not exaggerating like an hour perhaps longer an hour and 15 minutes of, of just billy joel songs and tim was like challenging you and you were like Ring it. Know all the words. <laughs> Scenes from an key. Italian restaurant. Like, Scenes from an Italian restaurant. Every single word. And he had, and the, the thing is, is that we would, we would imitate Billy Joel the way he sung yeah. in his beautiful Italian-American way and then crack each other up. We'd yeah. be like, you know, spitting up from, from laughing so hard and still keep going. It was, it was Greg, a highlight. Was, I think Greg was there, right? Greg? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, not Greg Howard, the... Uh... Other Greg, the other chatty Greg. Greg with the long hair. It was so much fun. And oh I think my he was God. quite a he singer, was singing right? there too, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was, it was, a, and this, this was a, in like a student lounge. So imagine like a student, we're at the American Jewish University, which is a huge campus. Beautiful and, campus. And, you know, we had dorms there. So we'd stay in the dorms. We'd go down to the cafeteria. 
have a nice lunch, breakfast, whatever it was. And then, you know, it was in the evening. I think it was like the Saturday night. It was the last Saturday night. Yeah. And really nobody wanted to go home. Like nobody wanted to go back to their dorm. So it was like, well, there's a piano in the corner of a room. I've been playing stick for five days, <laughs> right? Let's play the piano and sing Billy Joel songs. And I I, I walked in like halfway oh, through it. And it was like, it was like someone's like private party. And I was like, this is so fantastic. Tim is an amazing piano player. Yeah. Well, he's for real. I mean, he's, he's gigging and he's on tour and everybody wants him. And he's like, mm, maybe, I yeah. think, you know. Yeah. But I, ch- I, I, I told David Broski uh, that uh, oh, we yeah. would be at a conference together next year for sure, because I haven't met him. I have not met David. And he's done events out in the, up, I think up in the Ohio area, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Anytime that you can get to a conference, I, I strongly advise if you haven't yet, if you're a stick player listening and you haven't gone to a conference, just set everything else aside, save your pennies, get Amen. get ye to a stick conference because it's yeah. just... So Dale and Bill don't know this because the episode has not dropped yet. It won't drop for about another week or so, but we just spent uh, you know a little over an hour talking with Jim Meyer on the previous episode of the podcast and... Uh, you know, go back and listen to that if you haven't, because yeah, get to a conference, especially if you're a beginner, you know, this idea that, oh, I'm too new. I'm not ready to go for to a conference. Uh, you know, one of my new, one of my new mantras is don't go to a stick conference when you're ready. Go to a stick conference because you're not. Exactly. Get, get ye. Because get you're ye a beginner. You will, you will shoot your progress out of a cannon. <laughs> uh, it, the newer you are, the better <laughs> off you're going to be. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Yeah, it's true. And, and seeing it in person and just being able to talk about tension or tuning, um, recording, EQ, compression, preamps, all that sort of stuff. Technique. That too. All right. Well, Dale and Bill, thank you so much for carving out some time uh, out of your busy schedules uh, to join us on Tap In Time. I know I've learned a lot listening to you both about you as individuals and uh, a little bit more about the instrument and about recording it. I've got a few ideas that uh, I, I want to you know, give a try to now and uh, really appreciate you sharing your expertise. Uh, you've got, you've done so much work with recording the stick and it's really great to get some of your insights. So thank you so much for making the time to join us. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you guys. Thank you. And for those of you out there that have been listening to this episode of the podcast, we really appreciate your tuning in. Thanks again for coming along with us. And we hope that sometime in the next 24 hours, you get a chance to pick up your instrument, play for a while, and maybe even record a little bit. Hey, go. Goodbye. Goodbye. Oh, you guys, that was fun. Thank you so much. If you're the kind of person that stays to the end of the credits when you go to the theater to see a Marvel movie, here you go. This is for you. Sure. Sure. So I'm Dale's got a good NASA story. For I do have a good NASA story and it's true. Every little bit of it. Uh, and I should preface it with the, with the, the fact that I was born 
on April Fool's Day. So if anybody's allowed to be a goof, it's me. It's my birthright. Um, and you'll, you'll know why I, I, I said that when I tell you the story here. Um, a few years back, there was, um, I, I was, I mean, I've always been a bit of a news junkie and I was skating through a variety of uh, news channels, just checking things out. And uh, on CNN, there was a, a story of a man named Richard Bain, who uh, was wrongfully convicted, 35 years spent in a Florida penitentiary uh, for murdering a little guy. And um, and his family stood by him, um, knowing that he was was uh, not guilty. And uh, they had shown that, uh, you know, um, DNA evidence had exonerated him and they had showed his beautiful, beautiful African-American young man at 19 or 20. And then this, you know, spending 35 years in a Florida pen, you know that that's going to put some miles on you. So, uh, but he still managed to keep his beautific, eloquent, articulate, zen-like uh, I was so taken with his uh, when they're talking to him about how he just wanted to spend time with his family and stuff, and uh, and the 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 CNN reporter was almost like uh, trying to get him to say, well, you know, like we, you know, this is your your life has been thirty years of your life has been taken away, and uh, you know, are you going to sue? Are you going? He goes, no, man, I just I just want to spend time with my family and catch up, and you know, and uh, and uh, you know, uh, maybe. Uh, you know, go do some sightseeing, you know, go to NASA. And I'm like, oh my God, he just spent 35 years, you know, life taken, you know, from him, freedom. And he hasn't been to NASA. I'm going to do something about that. So I spent over probably an hour and a half getting the number to NASA, to the PR department at Cape Canaveral, and I told them yeah. about about uh, this man, wow, and damn. I thought that it would be a really good p- PR coup if NASA offered, you know, this maybe behind the scenes, and it was just before the last space shuttle uh, was set to go up. Maybe they could give him, you know, like a special tour, him and his family and stuff. And and the PR guy's like, "Wow, that's a really interesting idea." And you're calling from where? And um, and. Um, <laughs> So he said, okay, well, listen, I'll talk to my boss and stuff and, and I'll get back to you. And, uh, and I'm like, oh my God. So he, you know, half hour later, he calls me back and he says, okay, we're going to give him and his entire family a tour of NASA. And if, if he can make it in February, you know, maybe they can see the shuttle launch. And I'm like, oh my God. So I phoned uh-huh. CNN, the news desk, and I gave them an update. And the guy's like, and you're, call- <laughs> and you're calling from this where? just in <laughs> right? our Canada, a Canadian correspondent. <laughs> <laughs> so, because I thought, you know, like, come on, this would be a, a beautiful little gesture, right? And uh, and and this is like two and a half hours later, and Bill was in the studio, and he comes back in, and I'm like, Bill, Bill, you know that, you know that guy Richard Bain, that uh, wrongfully convicted. Uh, I just got him and his entire family a tour at NASA, and if they could see it in February, the, the shuttle launch, and, it, and he's like, no, 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 Dale. Dale, his father is from the Bahamas, NASA, Bahamas. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, did not expect that twist. Wow. Oh, wow. Well, did he do it anyway? I don't know. Oh, man. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> My name's Dale. Okay, no. You have to cut night. the end of that. That was such a great story until the end. I don't know. No. <laughs> oh, my God.
my goodness. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So I had to share that. <laughs> That's so good, though. We welcome your comments. You can contact us by email at tapintimepodcast at gmail.com.